We're continuing on the series of exiles in a foreign land, looking at this, the, 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 the biblical picture of those who are God's people living as exiles, not, not being members of this world in the same way as the rest of the culture, but being citizens, if you will, dual citizens. We're here, and yet we belong to ultimately the kingdom of God. And so what does it look like to live as exiles? And Pastor Stewart has led us through the last two weeks in a wonderful way to see this, and we'll uh, pick up next week on the theme of exiles in evangelism, and then we'll hit Isaiah the week after that. Real exiles experience a great sense of vulnerability because they're not at home. A real exile has, has lost home. They are in a place that's not, not their own, where they don't necessarily belong. They've lost the security of familiar sort of safety blankets, titled this stronghold for exiles because stronghold sounded like a more biblical term than safety blankets for exiles. But <laughs> safety blankets is the idea here. We all, we have these things that we look for for security. And, 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 and exiles basically feel very unsafe. Think about the Israelites when they are enslaved in Egypt and, and, and cannot leave. At least humanly speaking, they see no way out. They are at the hand of Pharaoh and at his whims. The the Jews, when the army of Babylon came in and, and exiled them, took them from out of their homes and, and displaced them and took them to a land that they did not know, couldn't Google ahead, had no idea what it was. They were being brought to a, a godless place. They were vulnerable in those places. They had no sense of belonging. Home was far away. They were a people without a nation living. It, it felt like at the whim of the ruler of that land. I think one of the very real challenges for us as believers in Jesus Christ today in the United States is it's hard for us to, to get that sort of sense because for the most part, we experience security. We, we, we live at peace. We, we, we know that we, we belong, we're citizens of a country, there are laws that are, are supposed to protect us, the laws are not always perfect, their enforcement is not always fair, but for the vast majority of Christians in America, they go about life without sensing this sort of fear or vulnerability of being in exile, of being someone who feels like they are without a home, and, and, and I think that can make it hard for us to, to grasp this whole concept. Because after all, we, we settle down. We, we get a place to live and we, we, we take care of our home and we, we put up our ring device so we know who's coming to our home. And, and we've got all of these efforts to, to feel safe. You remember some of Jesus's encounters. Luke 9 tells a few of them. In Luke 9, 57, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Just a bold declaration, wherever you lead, I'm, I'm right there. I'm going to be with you, Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is not the kind of adventure you think it is. You go with me and you will live the life of an exile. I promise you no, no particular place to even lay your head. Same passage in which one inquirer 
said that he would follow Jesus after he buried his father. And Jesus replied, leave the dead to bury their own. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And then to another who said, I will follow you. But first, let me say goodbye to my family. Jesus says, anybody that puts their hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Those are, those are strong statements from Jesus about the cost of following him. Because Jesus' intent is not to become part of the landscape of our lives. His intent is to be the landscape of our lives, to be that in which we dwell and in whom we belong and, and, and whom we call on. He is the Lord. His design is that we follow him at all cost, even to the point that we, we have this sense of being exiles and not belonging to the world around us. But let's face it. We don't fare very well at that. We, we've got our security blankets, we've got our people, we've got our places, we've got our things that we grab onto when we are discouraged, when we are hurt, when, when things are going wrong. There's these sort of things that we want that, that, that are supposed to keep us from feeling vulnerable. For instance, I'll, I'll give you one, and, 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 and I do this because we, we live in this area where it seems like life revolves around government. Government is probably one of the most ubiquitous security blankets we have. Preamble to our Constitution says as much, declaring its purpose is to establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and the generations that follow. Pastor, didn't you memorize the preamble to the Constitution? Yes, that was a long time ago. I memorized a lot of things back then that I cannot recite for you now. The evils of slavery and abortion show us that, that there were and are glaring failures to, to accomplish those ends. But generally, we have a government that is designed to provide a, a just, peaceful, and as secure an environment as possible for its citizens. That's what it, at least it's set out to do. And, and that can make it hard for us to to really get this sense of exactly what we're talking about. We are exiles. We don't belong. We, we don't have the same sense of security because we have a kind of dual citizenship. We belong to Jesus and his kingdom, and we are citizens of the United States of America. And it can be tempting at times to expect things, even from our government, that in an ultimate sense can only come from Jesus, can only be provided by him. Certainly, government has a role in... in establishing a secure, peaceful land for us to dwell in, for protecting the, the freedoms described in the Constitution. But as exiles, we belong to Jesus. And we must always be cognizant of the fact that our government, like us, is made up of sinners just like us, many of whom could care less about a biblical worldview or despise it. Now, I know many of you work for the government. Please don't take offense to that. I did, I did once too, so I understand that there are believers who love the Lord and serve, and, and I'm glad you do, that you serve where you serve. My point, though, is this. It, it can be easy for us to expect, put expectations on our government that betray what is a deeper dependence on it than should be the case for exiles who should know better, who should know where our ultimate dependence lies. Because we believe that all of this is fleeting, and it is marred by sin, 
And it is troubled and it is chaotic and we are exiles here. That's why Hebrews 12.28 implores us to give thanks that we have been given a kingdom that is unshakable. Kingdom that is not shaken. So amidst all the chaos of the world and the upheaval, we belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Turn to Psalm 20. That's where we're going to be this morning. Scroll there, turn there. Psalm 20, and here's the, the basic premise of what we're going to see. Psalm 20 reminds us that exiles have only one sure stronghold, one reliable shelter, and our trust and hope for peace and, and security must always lie in that stronghold. And the the converse of that is true as well, that we must not be so foolish as to put that hope and trust in anyone or anything else. We must not misplace that trust. Psalm 20, if you see right at the beginning, it's a psalm of David. It is um, typically described as a going to war psalm. Psalm 20 and 21 go together. If you read the two, you see the, the similarities between the two. The sense you get from Psalm 20 is that Israel's king, the commander-in-chief over the, the, the army, is, is preparing to go into battle. There is something coming. There is an enemy that they are facing. And so the people are praying for the king. The king is preparing to lead his army up against an enemy. So Psalm 20 is the people praying for God's blessing, for God's deliverance of the king and therefore them. And then Psalm 21 echoes that by praising God for meeting the king with life and blessing and a steady hand. With that in mind, let me read all the way through Psalm 20, and then we'll go back and work our way through it. Psalm 20 says, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O oh Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Those who... Uh, teach good writing like they do here at Lagos Classical Academy, here's my pitch, <laughs> tell you that you don't want to tell them what you're going to say. You tell them what you're saying, and then you summarize it. Tell them what you said. Well, verse 9 depicts that, that sort of approach, because verse 9 is just a great summary of, of Psalm chapter 20. Verse 9, where it says, O Lord, save the king, may he answer us when we call, says this this is an urgent plea by the people of Israel. There's one imperative verb in this psalm. So one sort of commanding, urgent kind of statement, and it's that, Lord, save the king. Save is a, an imperative verb. That Hebrew verb there can have the idea of save or deliver in the typical sense we think of, of, of sort of rescue. But, but the word also has the, the, the sense and can be translated, and you'll see in other versions, it says, give victory to the king. And they get that because the word has the idea of making wide the way of one's passage. 
sort of clearing out the, the things in front of it. And so it's sort of this picture of God go before the king and, and go into the enemy and scatter the enemy and make wide his way. So it's give him victory is, is a fine translation in this place. And, and essentially what, what the people are doing is, this is the people who are praying this for their king and they are praying that God would give him that victory, that God would give him that, that deliverance, that God would clear the way. Let's back up and, and just kind of walk through this. There's two parts to this psalm, verses 1 through 5, the people's intercession on behalf of the king, and then verses 6 through 8, which is the people's confession about what they believe about their ultimate king, who is Yahweh, followed by that summary that we've already talked about in verse 9. First thing you should notice as you look through verses 1 through 5 is every one of them begin with the word may. All five verses, may, please, this is, this is intercession. This is, as Stuart said it during the offering prayer, we would call it supplication. It is asking the Lord for something. It is pleading to the Lord for something. And so in verses 1 through 4, it's, we're essentially reading the hopes and desires that the people have for their king. This God is, is what we hope that you will do. And they're telling the king. This is how we're praying for you. This is how we appeal to God on your behalf. Fair to say, from all indications, the people recognize there's some kind of dire circumstance coming. Again, we don't know the exact setting here as to, to who the enemy is at this point, but it's fair to say that the people recognize there is something coming. And the king is about to lead the army out against them, and, and this is dangerous, and it, it's their own deliverance. That's at stake here, rescuing them from whatever this looming disaster is. And so starting with verse 1, I just want to suggest to you that what we see here are a people who really have a correct understanding of things. We often go back to the Israelites in the Old Testament. More often than not, we're using them for examples of what not to do. This is one of those instances where the record of their praying says they've got it straight. They understand that their deliverance, their rescue here depends on the king's deliverance, the king being delivered, but they understand that ultimately the only way that happens is if God works, is if God delivers the king, then they will be safe. That will be their security. And so they've got it right. They've got the priority straight, and they know that God has to answer prayer. God has to deliver them. God is the chief ruler in all this. He must hear them. That's why they're praying to him. The, 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 the people here are not, they're not cheering the king. They're not saying, you are such a skilled military tactician that we've put our hope in you. They're saying, no, we're praying God will deliver you. We're praying that you'll be, you'll be skilled and, and have wise plans, but that God would be the one then to cause them to be executed and would ultimately get the victory. The people's stake in this is clear really in that verse 5 when it says, may we shout for joy over your salvation. That's may, may we people shout for joy over your king, your, your salvation when you are saved and in the name of God, then can we set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. God, if we are to be delivered, if we are to rejoice in victory, if this situation is to be fixed, it will be because you acted, because you rescued the king and, and you from your holy sanctuary are our only hope. 
Before we leave this intercession section, I just want you to see something in verses three and four. He says, may he remember, this is again the people, may God remember all your king offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your, all your plans. Verse three is, is a glimpse of the king as a worshiper. We can go back and we can look at Saul and David and Solomon and, and, and understand that not, not always perfect. These were sinners, and so we've got flaws in Saul and David and Solomon, but they all participated in the life of the community in some way. They brought sacrifices. They, they participated in some way in the giving of offerings and worship, and what, what the people are praying is, may your worship be acceptable to God. May, may your sacrifices be received by God. So in a sense, they're praying that, that these would, these, this king would be a wholehearted worshiper so that God would indeed respond by accepting his offering. But may he accept your, your offerings. And that leads then into verse 4, which is kind of an interesting verse because, again, they're speaking to their king when they say, May God grant you, king, your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. We should pause here because we know our own hearts well enough and how we deal with wrong desires. That when we see the people saying, King, we're praying God would give you your desires and fulfill all your plans. There's a little bit of risk in there, it seems like, because we, we, we're, we're sort of counting on the king to have the right desires and the right plans. There's, there's two ways to look at this, I think. The, the Hebrew here is literally, in verse 4, may he give you according to your heart. So it's possible that part of what they're doing here in verse 4 is sort of a conditional request. May he give you according to your heart. May he, may he give to you as your heart is devoted to him. May, may be the sense in the Hebrew. It could be that. And, and even if it's not fully that, I, I would say that the, the, the lead-in to verse 4 is verse 3, which is, may you be a worshiper whose offerings are accepted by God. May you be one who, whose offerings and service and sacrifice is received by God. And so the king worships God, presents right offerings and sacrifices. Therefore, the people say, now, Lord, would you, would you fulfill his plans? Would you give him his desires? I, I would suggest to you it echoes a little bit of Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. It doesn't simply say, he will give you the desires of your heart. No, nothing else around that. It, it offers the precondition of delight yourself in the Lord. How do you do that? You know him. You seek him. You read about him. You meditate on God's character. You worship God. You grow in your knowledge of him and in your delight in him so that over time your praying, as demonstrated in your desires, reflect his his working in your heart, his changing your heart. And so as a believer in Jesus Christ, hopefully you can look back 10 years ago and say, my, my desires as I pray now have been changed. I've seen God mature my, my, my pleading with him and, and my desires expressed before him. When we pray, when we intercede, we, we do so knowing God's will is perfect. It will be done that's why the importance of praying is that we're growing in the knowledge of God and we're submitting ourselves to his will and we're desiring for him to, to accomplish all that he wants to as we meditate on him. And the more we do that, the more likely it is our desires will be more consistent with his will because we will be thinking in that way. 
All right, that's the people's intercession, verses one through five. Let's move on and, and read this confession of what they believe, and I wanna just start with verse six. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Up until now, every verse has started with may, please, asking for this, Lord, it's been intercession. Verse six suddenly begins with now. This is the transition point in this psalm. I, I would suggest to you again, even though this, this is a psalm of David, this is something David has recorded in this case. And what it seems like is he has recorded in the first part, the words of the, the worshipers, the words of the people who are praying for him. And now it, it seems to be, because in particular it moves to a, um, a, a singular, it's one person who is speaking here. Now I know, and, and it would seem to be that at this point we hear the voice of, of perhaps a worship leader, perhaps one of the Levites. Now the, the crowd has, has said, we are praying this way, and now the, the leader, the, the priest, the prophet is sort of summarizing as the voice now for the people speaking back. And he's now confessing. All of this intercession, all that we have pleaded for, is based on what we know. And Lord, we know that you are trustworthy. We know that you are the God who saves. We are bringing these things before you because of what we know about who you are and how you long to save and answer prayer. There is such certainty in the speaker's voice in verse six. Hebrew uses a verb tense. It's called the perfect tense. It's designed to convey just that. So it's not, he's not saying, we're learning. We're in the process of getting to figure out if you're trustworthy or not or reliable. We're sort of thinking you might be. He is saying, no, we know the Lord saves. The Lord answers. If there is victory to be had, it is because the Lord does it because we know you. We know your character. We know who you are. And if there is to be victory here, it will be because you sent it by your mighty hand because that's what you do. It's just like we, when we sang before, oh God, our help in ages past. It, it, that's, a, that's a song that should generate and it, it, some history in our minds of just how we've seen God work. Ages sounds like a long time, and it is, but, but we can think in our own lives of all the instances of where God acted in our lives, where he, he worked mightily, where he delivered, where he, he worked through circumstances to grow us in the midst of that. And that's why he is speaking now with such certainty, because he says, God, we, we know <laughs> you're saving God. You're a prayer answering God, you are a delivering God, and so we, we bring this before you. That verb for saves, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed, verse six, same one is down in verse nine, so it's rescues, delivers, but also the idea of making the way clear, give, providing victory, if you will. God, if, if we are delivered, and, and we believe we will be, it is because you will have done it, because it is your hand. This is... We need to remember this is still, this is still future for them. This, this battle is, is impending. And, and, and so it's still to come, and yet they know, they, yet they speak with this certainty that we are trusting in you and relying on you to answer our prayers and exercise your power. If you look back at verse 1, 
the intercession. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. There's the intercession. And then you come to verse six. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. There's such a, a sweet transition that goes on there that is based on their knowledge of the truth about God. Yahweh, you are a savior. And so we rest in that. Now, the next two verses are critical. These are the two that I just really want us to, to go away this morning thinking about these two and how we apply them to our lives. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Here's the verses I want us to think about in terms of being exiles in our culture. These, these two verses form just a very clear, very simple contrast to make the case for we have one true stronghold. We have one who is secure, one who is reliable, and it is foolish for us to put that trust in someone or something else. That trust must be in this one who is secure, who we know to be true. Verse 7 indicates to us that the Israelites, humanly speaking, recognize that they are up against some superior force. They, they're talking about chariots and horses. There is an awareness on the, the part of these individuals. They are, they are looking at the battlefield and on a human plane, they are seeing that the odds are not exactly in their favor because the enemy has chariots and horses. You know a little bit about chariots. They weren't new at this point in time and go back to the Egyptians, right? When they were pursuing the, the Israelites out of Egypt, pursuing them to the Red Sea, and they are coming in chariots. We all remember watching the Charles and Heston, right? The chariots getting stuck in the mud, you know, in the middle of the, of the river there as the, the land is, is, they're about to be swallowed up and, and their chariots are bogged down in all of it, right? So the Egyptians pursued them with, with chariots. When Joshua was leading the Israelites into the promised land, one of the most fearful cries of the people comes in Joshua 17, 16. They say, they, they look out at the enemy and they say, all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, Joshua, what are you thinking, man? How are we going up against these people? They've all got chariots. We got nothing. What do we got? Swords and spears and our feet to run with. And they are, they, they, they are recognizing that they are, they're about to lose, at least they think they are. That would have been, Joshua would have been about 400 years before this psalm. Fast forward those four centuries to the time of Saul. Saul is king. David is one of his military officials. 1 Samuel 13, 5 describes how the Philistines showed up to fight Israel with 30,000 chariots. You're, you're one of the Israelites, and you got your shoes on your feet, and you're, you're maybe wearing some form of armor, and you got your sword, and there's 30,000 chariots standing across the valley. And verse 6 tells us what they did. They hid themselves in any hole they could find, a, a, a tomb, a cave, a well. They, they, just, they just wanted to be buried in the earth at that moment because they were terrified. In 2 Samuel 8, David, it says, led the defeat 
of an army that was equipped with chariots. David's got a little experience here. He's seen what God can do, but, but essentially just from a military point of view, other than chariots that they had taken as spoils of war, so some that they had collected, there's no indication that Israel was well-equipped with chariots until the time of David's son, King Solomon. And so for the most part, as, as David is recording this, they are outgunned. The chariots and horses were the height of military technology in that day. They are like foot soldiers on one side, standing there with, with their, their guns today, and there are tanks and Bradleys, and there's things coming at them that are going to crash through them and just drive over them and destroy them. And that's what they're seeing. That's what the chariots could do. They could run through that line of spear-wielding foot soldiers and just leave a wake of destruction. So to trust in chariots, to be the side that had the chariots, was to go in with the superior firepower and to go in with the assumption that we will, we will destroy them. Who are they to, to stand against us? We will literally run them over, and, and, and there's nothing they can do about it. And so some trusted in their chariots. King David had learned as a military officer that by God's power, even chariots and horses could be defeated. That by God's strength... Even chariots and horses didn't stand to match up against God when God was at work. Verse 8 says it so well. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. The Hebrew word for collapse also can mean to kneel or to bow down. Take the picture from beginning to end. There's the chariots. They're trusting in them. Those are powerful and strong, and they look like they're going to devastate. But by God's hand, when all is said and done, the ones with the chariots will be prostrate on the ground. They will be face into the ground, and we will be the ones who will rise. By God's grace, he will raise us up, and we will stand upright. Because God is the stronghold. God is the one in whom they are trusting. That only happens by trusting in the name of the Lord. And he says it, we trust in the name of Yahweh, our Elohim, we trust in the name of the Lord, our God, our sure, unshakable, unfailing source of strength and security. It's the name of the one to whom we belong. It is God. It's just like Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and they are saved, right? We're familiar with the benediction from Numbers chapter 6. We often have heard that one quoted. We, we usually hear verses 24 to 26, but there's one verse left in number six. And so let me read the, the benediction plus that verse that finishes the chapter. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. It's an interesting statement. And what it's saying is that the Lord... Lord bless you, keep you, make his face shine upon you, lift up his countenance to you, give you peace. Why? Because the Lord has set his name on you. Because the Lord has taken and put you under the shelter of his identity so that you belong to Yahweh. If you are trusting in him, you are his. And that's why he's stressing his name. The name of Yahweh is the name on which all of God's covenant promises stand. He has, he has given those promises with his name. 
Stuart said this right at the beginning in the, in the call to worship. He is a, a God who makes promises and keeps promises. And, and he makes those promises on the basis of I am Yahweh. I am God. There is no other. Almost 90 times in the Old Testament, we see the phrase, the name of the Lord. We look at all those instances and it should teach us that only the people of God, only those who are trusting in him, can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Other people can speak his name. People say the name of God and Jesus all the time. But the, the blessing and the strength and the power and the promises of God are for those who belong to him, those on whom his name rests. For us today, that is for you who are trusting in Jesus Christ. It's the heart of the gospel. We believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in flesh, came to earth, lived a sinless life, and died on the cross to take our sin on himself, to take the punishment for our sin in himself, and was put to death for our sin. Not a sinner himself, but made to be sin, our sin, so that he might die in our place. And then by raising from the dead, by the resurrection, being victorious over sin and death and giving life to his people. His name is the one we proclaim. When we, when we stand against God's enemies, they should be able to identify us, not by party, not by community group, not by filling whatever other human organization or click thing, they should be able to know that we stand in the name of God and our action, actions should reflect that we come in the name of the Lord, that we stand in him and we trust in him. When David was talking about his plans, his desire, I should say, to build the temple, his son Solomon builds it, but when David spoke about it, he described it as a house for the name of the Lord. We don't often think of those terms. We think of it's a house for the Lord. David saw it as a house for the name of the Lord because that name Yahweh encompasses everything God is. When God, you remember, reveals himself to Moses, I am who I am. I am the self-existent, almighty, no one like me, God. I am the, the powerful one. I am the present one. I am who I am. And because he is Yahweh, he saves. So uh, let me just finish by thinking about application on this, taking Psalm 20 and applying it to us. And, and let me first say what not to do with Psalm 20. Here's, here's, the, here's the caution of the error. There is no direct correspondence between the king in Psalm 20 and any particular modern day leader. <laughs> See where I'm going with this, right? I heard that. <laughs> Psalm 20 is not teaching us to pray, Lord, please grant the heart's desire of our president and fulfill his plans. It doesn't matter who the president is or what that president professes to believe. We should not lift Psalm 20 out of its clear historical context speaking of the kings of Judah and try to equate it with some present day leader. Now, sadly, we can probably find instances of exactly this kind of mentality today, but instead of picking on anybody in the world around us, I will go back to Spurgeon about 160 years ago in the 19th century in England. And Charles Spurgeon wrote this, 
Psalm 20, this psalm, has been used, has been much used for coronation, thanksgiving, and fast sermons, and no end of nonsense and sickening flattery has been tacked thereto by chaplains of the world's church. If kings had been devils, some of these gentry would have praised their horns and hoofs. For, for although some of their royal highness, highnesses have been very obedient servants of the prince of darkness, these false prophets have dubbed them most gracious sovereigns and have been as much dazzled in their presence as if they had beheld the beatific vision, as if they'd been in Isaiah 6, seeing the very presence of the Lord. 160 years ago, Spurgeon is decrying religious leaders who are praying Psalm 20 over kings and rulers as if they are somehow the, the anointed ones of the Lord, even when they are overtly evil, and Spurgeon was appalled. Let's just be clear. Lord raises up leaders. There's no question about that. Those who are in authority are there because the Lord has sovereignly decreed that they be in authority. And there's also no question that we are called to pray for our leaders. 1 Timothy 2 tells us to do that. But I would argue that in the context of 1 Timothy 2, one of the priorities in our praying is that we are praying for leaders, particularly those who are lost, that they would come to salvation because he says in that passage that it is this desire to save. And, and, and so one of the things we are praying is, Lord, we don't know the hearts of our leaders. You do. Those who need you, who need to trust in Jesus Christ, we plead first and foremost that you would save them. And then, as, as 1 Timothy 2 also explains, we're praying that God would, would, would work through them, despite their sin and flaws, to provide an environment for us that, that at least sets the stage for tranquility, that we may live peaceful and tranquil lives. So we intercede for our leaders, knowing full well that man is fallen and that our prayers are not always answered in the ways that we might hope. But again, as one commentator put it, to identify the leader of any one nation as the modern equivalent of the king of God's people is subject to dangerous misunderstanding and distortion. I probably shouldn't have to say that, and yet I feel like in where we are today in our political discourse, we need to say that. It is the Lord whose name we call on. It is the Lord who is the sovereign. It is the Lord who saves. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus spoke with that same authority about his own name, spoke of the importance of his name. You will be hated for my name's sake. Some of you will, will leave all this other, and he was talking about family members. You'll leave others behind for what? For my name's sake, and you will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. It's using his name in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, called to make disciples of all the nations, teaching them, and then baptizing them in what? The name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They must be identified with the Savior, with the Lord. The name of Jesus, the name of the Lord is our stronghold because it stands for everything our Lord is, that he is just and righteous and holy and true and gracious. He is the one Sure, reliable source of hope. The one in whom we can depend and trust no matter what. And so as, as other people watch you deal with trials and temptations, and suffering and circumstances, it is your identity in Jesus that they should see. They, they should see that there's something about you that, that handles this differently and they should come to know that it is because you are in Christ. You are belonging to the name of Jesus. It is your sure belief 
that the Lord's will is just and true and right, and he is trustworthy in all things, and that should speak louder than anything else. The Lord is our stronghold. Now, here's the question where it gets hard. What are your chariots? What are your horses? What I mean by that is what, what are your security blankets? What are mine? What are the things, the people, the stuff we, we go to because we somehow think it'll fix everything? We somehow feel like this, this, is, this is the person who should make me safe. This is the thing. I'll, I'll do this because it'll shut everything else out. This is where I'm secure. I, I mentioned government at the beginning of this because it's so ubiquitous and so easily positions itself as our security. It's okay to desire that government do well, that it indeed protect the things that it is supposed to protect, and, and protecting liberty is one of those. It's, it's okay to participate in politics. It's good to vote in, in God-honoring ways for candidates, particularly who will, who will stress the importance of protecting your religious, your ability to worship and, and, and live at peace. That's all good. But when the other candidate is elected, that should not... That should not shake our world. That should not fill us with anger. That should not turn us to social media with vitriol against that person because the Lord is our stronghold. We're trusting in the name of the Lord our God. And so the fallenness of the world around us is a reminder that we're exiles here. This really isn't our home. It's okay to to speak truth. It's okay to say, hey, I think this is wrong, and and biblically, this is not right. And it's good for us to be a voice. It is not good for us to be an angry voice that sort of belies this trust that it must be this way, or I don't know what to do with it any longer. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. But I've I've picked on government enough. What are the other other chariots and horses? What are the other security blankets? When, When things get hard, Life hurts. What do you run to? What do you grab to? Alcohol, food, binge-watching TV series, complaining, some form of immorality, rage. Might be just going in your room and turning out the light and curling up in a ball and just being thoroughly depressed about everything. I don't want to deal with anyone or anything because it's just not going right. Right? Do you have something like that? Sort of a security blanket of sorts that has become something that has displaced the stronghold of the name of the Lord that I grab onto when, when I feel like I need something else? Let me just speak to, to, I think to all of us, but some of you may in particular be struggling with, Pastor, you don't know. You don't know how messed up my life is. You don't know how much sin I have. And this whole idea of crying out to the Lord and him being my stronghold, I, how can I possibly do that? Well, first of all, I would point you to the beginning of this, a Psalm of David. And I would remind you that one of the things we, we know best about David is his repentance, his confession because of his sin in Psalm 51 that David committed grievous sin, the man of God, and yet pled to God for forgiveness, ran to God when, when Nathan finally got through to him, the spirit got through to him through Nathan, pled to God for forgiveness. So I, I don't know where you are this morning, and I don't know what your sin is, but I, 
But I am sure based on the word of God that if you will run to the Lord, if you will call on the name of the Lord your God, he will be your stronghold. You can trust him and rest in him. We have God's declaration of who he is. And we've got this long history for us going back, this takes us back 3,000 years, of reminding us again and again that he saves and he is trustworthy and we can call on him. Oh God, our help in ages past. We've got all of these testimonies. And so when the chariots and the horses are assembling against you, or when you are tempted to grab onto your chariots and horses to try to ride through circumstances, may I plead with you to pause and call on the name of the Lord and say, Lord, I, I need your power and your help in this. I, I, will, I will do my best to be a faithful steward of what you have given me and how you have equipped me, but you must work, you save, you hear, you deliver, and if there is to be victory in this, it will have to be yours and rest in that. We are exiles. That means that if we're gonna define that right, we don't, have a, we don't have a host of protections around us. We're out there. We have the stronghold of the name of the Lord. That's, that's the greatest one. That's the one we need. The, the closest family, the dearest people around us will have their days when they will be no-shows and they will disappoint us and we will be if that's where our hope is, if that's where our trust is, we will be sorely disappointed and tempted toward anger. And that's why the, the call is not the chariots, not the horses, not the things that look easy around you, that, that look like the safe victories. Trust in the name of the Lord. Rest in him. Call out to him. Cry out to him. Let's pray. We come to you, Father, as a people who continue to strive to learn these truths Father, I, I, I pray for brothers and sisters in Christ here. We, all of us have had that experience of putting too much on someone near to us, um, putting our hope, our protection from vulnerability um, on, on, on a person or on a thing. Lord, even it, we know that as, as a body of believers, we are, we are to be a, a place where our brothers and sisters in Christ find hope and encouragement. And yet, even here at the local church level, we, we fail. We let each other down. Lord, we, we ask for your help in, in ministering to others, being there and supporting others. But, but mostly, Lord, I just pray that we would we would become convinced from your word that nothing can displace you as the one sure stronghold. That your name alone is always reliable. It's always true, always just, always gracious, always faithful. Lord, if there's anyone listening to this this morning online here that, that is not trusting alone in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Would, would you, by your mercy, open their eyes to see that the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ alone is their hope to inherit eternal life, to be forgiven, to know the, the name of the Lord, to know Yahweh, to know Jesus personally and intimately. 
And if they will acknowledge that they are sinners and trust in Jesus, that they will be saved because you are a God who saves. And Lord, for my brothers and sisters and myself, help us to grow in this. Help us to grow in running to you, in trusting in you, in finding our hope in you, and helping others to find their refuge in you, to not displace that dependence and put that burden on those around us that, that ultimately you, you call us to. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You, you are eager for us to come to you and rest in your stronghold. Help us by your Spirit's enablement to do that, to grow in that, and to find the comfort and peace and hope that only you can give. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.